It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. I'm Susie Subways. Um, I use she and her pronouns. Um, I've been an anarchist organizer since 1990 when I was 16 in Philadelphia. Um, and then I spent 10 years in New York City. I was part of Love and Rage, Revolutionary Anarchist Federation, and SLAM, Student Liberation Action Movement, which was a working class um, student group led by women of color. Then, like, since then, I've done stuff like work with indie media, um, the AIDS movement, um, Occupy Philly Media. I've done a lot of anti-prison organizing, and I've been working on prison health news um, for 12 years, which is a national newsletter for people in prison about health issues with most of the articles by people in prison. Um, and I'm a member of Philly Socialist, which is a multi-tenancy group. Uh, but so I'm an anarchist, and we have anarchists in the group, um, focused on base building organizing here in Philly. Yeah, and my name is Spencer Beswick. I use he, him pronouns. I'm a history PhD candidate at Cornell, so I live in Ithaca, New York, um, and I'm currently involved with the Ithaca DSA, but I've been involved with a number of anarchist projects throughout the years, um, from Occupy Boston to Food Not Bombs, um, a local info shop in Ithaca, um, and my own research and writing is on the history of anarchism in the left, especially in the late 20th century. So I'm writing my dissertation on the revitalization of the U.S. anarchist movements in the 1980s and 90s, um, with a particular focus on the Love and Rage Revolutionary Anarchist Federation and the development of revolutionary intersectional anarchism. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's it's awesome to have you both here. Uh, just to kind of give a bit of context, this was spurred by an article that came out called We're Pro-Choice and We Riot, How Anarcho-Feminists Built Dual Power and Struggles for Reproductive Freedom, which itself was sort of a more spicy version of an op-ed that came out in the Washington Post. I don't know how you made that possible, but we're kind of diving a little more into that history audio-wise, and we're really excited to do so. And just to start off, Spencer, let's go with you first. Explain the historical context of how Roe versus Wade was won in the first place. That will kind of set up a larger discussion we're going to have here today. Yeah, absolutely. And and thanks so much for having us both on the podcast. Um, this is this is really great chance to chat about this stuff. And yeah, I want to open by just saying, you know, Obviously, we all know that abortion is under attack right now, right, with the Supreme Court seemingly set to reverse Roe v. Wade. And so at demonstrations across the country, we keep being told to vote, vote, vote. That's the way to um, protect abortion. But this begs the question, is this actually the correct strategy? Um, and history gives us different answers and different strategies to use. And I think that what's key here is, is to realize that abortion was not won through the vote or through legal means, but rather it was won through militant mass movements and through people taking power into their own hands. So why did the Supreme Court pass Roe v. Wade in 1973? It wasn't because of voting. It wasn't because of legal struggles. It also wasn't because the Supreme Court suddenly became more enlightened and uh, pro-abortion. Um, and people had fought for decades before this to try to reform abortion laws. Um, and it was a very kind of professional class fight of doctors and lawyers and other professionals um, who were trying to expand exceptions to the laws prohibiting abortion. Um, so, for instance, um, exceptions for rape and for health concerns, etc. 
But over the course of decades, these struggles accomplished very little. But suddenly, over the course of a few years, in the late 1960s through early 1970s, everything changed. And in just a few years of militant mass struggle in the women's liberation movement, they set up a situation where the Supreme Court was forced to act. So beginning in the late 1960s, feminists in the women's liberation movement who are very plugged into other liberation movements, anti-war movements, anti-capitalist movements um, in the United States, they began to speak out publicly about their own abortions and organized consciousness raising groups. And they discovered that their personal issues were deeply political, including reproduction and abortion. And they developed strategies to build power from below and to take control of their own lives. So they marched in the streets, they disrupted male-dominated medical spaces, and they developed widespread underground provision of abortion. So the most well-known example, you know, being the Jane Collective in Chicago, which performed over 10,000 abortions from 1969 to 1973. So feminists took reproductive care into their own hands and built a militant mass movement to fight for the repeal of all abortion laws. They weren't fighting for reforms and tinkering around the edges of the laws prohibiting abortion, but rather for their wholesale repeal. And the Supreme Court realized after a few years of this that the easiest way to respond to this movement was actually to codify limited abortion rights into law. They were forced into this position by a militant mass movement that was undermining the very structures of patriarchy and the broader struggle for liberation. But this history of struggle that produced Roe v. Wade has largely been erased. And we are told a narrative of enlightened liberals pursuing legal strategies that convince the Supreme Court to protect the right to privacy, including abortion in Roe v. Wade. So I think it's really important to learn from this history of struggle um, because it has many lessons to offer us today as the Supreme Court moves to outlaw abortion again. And I'll just say quickly, too, that after Roe v. Wade, the right launched a concerted attack on reproductive freedom, on the women's liberation movements, and on the gains of the 1960s more broadly. So they immediately started to chip away at Roe v. Wade through things like the Hyde Amendment, which prevents federal funding for abortion and thus makes it much more difficult for poor people to get abortions. Um, and then Reagan and the New Right, supported by the Christian Right, kind of led the charge against abortion in the 1980s. Much of the feminist movement went on the defensive, trying to protect the legal gains of the women's liberation movements and framing things around pro-choice activism rather than abortion and liberation. But then in the mid to late 1980s and into the 1990s, two things happened that really changed the train of struggle. First, right-wing extremists went on the attack against abortion clinics so a radical anti-abortion group called Operation Rescue was formed in 1986 with the slogan, if you believe abortion is murder, act like it's murder. And they tried to physically shut down abortion clinics and they supported people who bombed clinics and assassinated abortion providers. And then second, in the realm of the state, it looked like the Supreme Court might reverse Roe v. Wade itself. And in response to this, feminists began organizing militant mass movements to defend abortion, including anarcho-feminists in love and rage. So I think that this time period of the late 1980s and early 1990s is very analogous to our own period today. And that I am I look forward to hearing from Susie more about your participation in these struggles, because I, I think that there's really a lot to offer to us today. One other overarching question, just for historical context, Um so in the struggle for reproductive freedom and bodily autonomy, um, give us some sense of the anarchist approaches to it going into the 1980s and 1990s. Yeah, totally. So I think that there's, you know, different ways to approach the question of abortion. One that I've kind of referenced is the liberal approach, which would view abortion as an individual right for the state to provide and to protect. Um, and so most of the mainstream feminist movement took this approach, um, which ultimately gives the state more power. It disempowers communities to act on our own, and it leaves us defenseless against the state changing its mind and taking away the rights whenever it is convenient to them or whenever the ruling class determines that actually this would be more useful um, for their class interests um, and for their patriarchal interests. 
So the way that anarchists typically view abortion struggle, I think, is is much more useful. So the more radical way to approach abortion is through a framework not of individual rights, but rather through autonomy and freedom. So abortion is not an individual right to be recognized by the state, but rather a question of our individual and collective capacity to take care of our own bodies and provide reproductive care for our communities. So building and defending this capacity gives us control over our own reproduction and our health more broadly. So this is the foundation of true autonomy and freedom, as well as thinking more broadly about building infrastructure and uh, institutions that can form dual power structures that challenge the rule of the state and capitalism. Spencer mentioned the, the strategy, early strategy of early 70s of repeal all abortion laws. So that is literally getting the state away from your body, right? So there's, there was sort of this dynamic where this, um, choice versus life framework came into play where the Christian right has been, um, in control of the public debate ever since, I would say, I don't know, the seventies probably. Um, so it's, are you pro-choice or are you pro-life? Which makes it an, a moral question. And, um, so I think that choice is pretty stupid because um, people don't have the ability to choose. Um, I mean, you know, Spencer me- mentioned that there's not been Medicaid funds for abortion since the late 70s with the Hyde Amendment. Um, people have low wages and no access to childcare, no good access to all of the things that you need to choose to have children. So a lot of times people have an abortion, not really. I mean, can you call that a choice under the society that we live in? So, um, while the uh, Christian right has made it about this morality issue of um, choice versus life, they've been winning this. And it's it's a wedge strategy that they've divided uh, people who were formerly united around bodily autonomy and freedom. And then there's also the black feminist agenda and strategy and critique that came out of um, like the Kumbahi River Collective statement in the late 70s. Um, that led to the reproductive freedom analysis. So that includes not just abortion, but um, talking about sterilization abuse against Black, Latinx, and Indigenous people, um, and other issues like targeting uh, women for sterilization because of drug use. Um, so, yeah, so um, anti-racist coalition work is a, a very good strategy and also um, telling, you know, demanding repeal of all laws related to abortion. Great. Well, let's now turn to you. So talk about joining the Love and Rage uh, Federation and, and tell us a little bit about what that was and how did it develop a strategy around feminist organizing and organizing around issues of reproductive freedom? So I joined Love and Rage in 1995 after the um, after the strategy had really been developed. So what I experienced in 1995 was kind of um, – after the um, the liberal feminist had told us um, to stop defending clinics. And so my um, political analysis is really around that. So Love and Rage, I joined because they were doing real base-building organizing, which is something that I had been doing, but I hadn't found anarchists who were, do- who were doing that as anarchists, per se. Like in Philly, there were a lot of anarchists doing... Um, Act up, you know, AIDS activism, uh, squatting, and actually started starting the first um, needle exchange um, to prevent HIV transmission among drug users here in Philly. But when I moved to New York and found Love and Rage, I was like, wow, okay, so we can do this work as anarchists and build our strategies as anarchists. So that impressed me. So we had working groups that were um, across the country. I mean, we had, you know, a few people in Canada, and there was a group in Mexico, Amorigrabia which was the Love and Rage in Mexico. So we did call ourselves a continental organization, but it was mainly in the U.S. And we were mainly in Minneapolis, New York, um, and some places, in other places in the Midwest, Southwest. Um, and um, so we had working groups against, like so we had anti-fascist working group, which was mainly around anti-racist action. And that also incorporated um, this work against the Christian right as part of the anti-fascist work. And then we had an anti-austerity working group, which I was part of, um, doing fighting for access to CUNY, City University of New York, with SLAM, the Student Liberation Action Movement, and fighting against workfare um, 
the the work that people were being forced to do in New York City in order to get their welfare check, which was way below minimum wage under Giuliani. Um, but yeah, I mean, mainly we differed from other anarchists in that we were very much pro-organization. And we were also really trying to bring up anti-racism more into the anarchist movement. Um, we covered a lot of prison issues in our newspaper, um, in addition to being like, like really involved in anti-racist action in the Midwest. Explain the idea of clinic defense. You said when you got involved, like the liberal section of the movement said, we don't need to do that anymore. Maybe talk about what it was like getting involved and like what the tenor of the country was around abortion access and reproductive freedom at the time. Thank you. Yeah. So um, clinic defense was a very grassroots direct action way to um, fight for our bodily autonomy and also to just protect the, these spaces where really vulnerable people were going for their health care. People at moments in their lives where they were possibly in crisis, like young people, maybe um, experiencing, you know, having experienced sexual assault and not wanting to go to the police, people who have um, had abusive relationships, um, people and also including um, older people who might have just have had enough children. Um, and we felt that these were very precious places that we wanted to protect. So um, what we would do is just wake up really early in the morning and um, the first time I did it was in 1992 um, and I was at Antioch College in Ohio and we would drive to Columbus and um, there would be, I don't know, 20 or 30 of us, um, maybe more. And we would line up in front of the clinic and we would um, be prepared to link arms if um, the, the anti, we call them the antis, anti, anti-choice, the antis. <laughs> so it could get a little bit confusing, but um, yeah, we wait to see if the antis would come. And we'd stay all day, like whether they came or not, we would stay all day. So those were movements, moments in this movement where we were really um, energized, really angry, feeling very protective of these precious places and also building relationships with each other around those emotions and all the trust that we had that we were building. So if they did come, you were basically eyeball to eyeball with the enemy. So they, if they showed up and I personally like, um, wasn't there this one time, but my friend Kathy Wilder was there this time when they did show up and it was all day and you're, you're, you're protecting the clinic. And sometimes they would try to go between your legs and you would have to kick them. You know, it was very like, they were very violent and you just had to act in self-defense. So, um, this horrible, creepy man was harassing Kathy Wilder and she's a, a butch lesbian from rural Maine. So, you know, grew up on a farm. Um, and he's telling her, you should be married and having children, like this horrible shit, just all day long, right? And so at some point in the afternoon, she pulls out her bloody pad, hands it in, puts it in his hand, and says, put this in your petri dish and grow it. So <laughs> anyway, in, in answer to his um, very aggressive uh, suggestion that she should be having children. So this uh, movement really energized and empowered us and we felt like um we were finding ourselves you know we're finding our power and um we were listening to a lot of Ani DeFranco it was really like a moment where the movement was growing I also did it in Philadelphia in 1993 um the Operation Rescue had targeted Philly among um seven cities and states um that they were going to try to shut down our clinics and so in summer of 93 we kept it open. There were at least 100 people on our side. Um, there were large numbers of people on both sides. Um, and we were just, it was like a very heated thing. But I think that they were on the other, yeah, they were on the other side of the street. So it was slightly different. They weren't like in literally in our faces the way they were in Ohio. But there was also a point where there were these amazing anarchist lesbians who I just super looked up to. And they were just so hot and fierce. And um, I followed them around the corner because they were chasing this guy who was a leader of, I think, probably possibly the leader of Operation Rescue. But I don't remember the name of the person. But they had found, you know, they knew who he was. And we, like, followed him a few blocks. And he was, like, <laughs> cowering in fear. And they were totally surrounded him very close and yelling at him. 
And it was like, it wasn't like they didn't physically attack him, but they were, they were all around him. He had no way out and they were just yelling at him. And I was like, wow, this is really powerful. You know, I thought that was great. You know, get out of our town, you know, use whatever way you can say, get out of our town and show our power. There was also, you know, to contrast with that, when I was um, there that day in Philly, um, I saw a friend. She was actually um, this young black woman who was the first person who made friends with me when I moved to Philly in my high school. But anyway, um, I said, um, oh, no, she's over there. And so I actually went over to say hi to her. And um, she was standing with this friend of hers. It looked like she had come with a church group or something, and she didn't look very happy to be there. And her friend was like kind of making snide comments to me. But I was nice to my friend. And then I was like, see you later. And I went back to the other side. And then years later, um, I reconnected with this friend on Facebook and she's out as a lesbian. And, you know, she's she seems to be, just, you know, living a happy life and not, you know, definitely not um, <laughs> with Operation Rescue. So I feel like that sort of illustrates the sort of like, Peace to the villages, war to the palaces kind of strategy. Like, you know, people might think it's rude to shout down this guy, but I feel like that was a very important tactic. And then it shouldn't stop us from trying to reach out to people who could be um, brought back to a more like human vision. For those of us that have kind of like read the history, sort of the narrative is that a lot of the clinic defense grew out of anti-racist action. Is, is that true in some parts of the country and maybe not true in others? When did that start, really? Yeah, I mean, my sense is that anti-racist action was key here, um, in part because they um, or certain people within anti-racist action were really pushing the analysis that said that Operation Rescue and anti-abortion activism was actually one of the core components of the fascist and white supremacist movements at the time. And so they couldn't be separated off into, oh, this is a different issue. This isn't um, about the anti-racist and anti-fascist struggle, but rather this was one of, you know, the key components of it. And so to fight Operation Rescue and to defend abortion clinics was actually a key part of um, the struggle against fascism. Um, and so I think that one interesting thing about the anarchist participation in the clinic defense movements um, is that they were able to bring in these new sets of tactics and strategies that came out of other wings of the anarchist and other radical movements. So, for instance, you know, beginning around 1989 um, uh, or 1990, anarchists in the U.S. start to introduce black bloc tactics um, into the United States, and they bring those tactics to the clinic defense, and they say, okay, if Operation Rescue is going to try to push through us and try to physically shut down the clinic, what are the most effective strategies that we can use to prevent this from happening? And some of them consciously decided, okay, we're going to start using black bloc tactics here because they will enable us to defeat Operation Rescue. So, you know, for instance, in 1990, Operation Rescue tried to shut down a an abortion clinic in um, Dobbs Ferry, um, which is a suburb of New York City. And so the group Autonomous Anarchist Action, which was essentially the Love and Rage affiliate in New York City, went there. There was about 15 people who were in Black Bloc, and they... I mean, first of all, they had done a lot of um, organizing first with a broader coalition of people to defend the clinic, but they were the ones who came in and introduced these black bloc tactics and physically defended the abortion clinic. And at one time, you know, Susie was describing how the Operation Rescue protesters would try to, you know, rush people, try to crawl between their legs. Um, and some people would just use the tactic of trying to, you know, uh, stands there and prevents them from doing that. Um, but a lot of the anarchists decided, no, we're going to go on the offensive. If they try to push through us, we're actually going to push back and we're going to repel them. Um, and this came out of the experience of exactly the, you know, street fighting tactics that anti-racist action was developing to say, it's actually time and it's necessary for us to confront fascists in the streets. And if we are able to beat them in the streets, that uh, is a significant setback to their movement. 
And it's a way of building our own power and our own revolutionary capacity. So it was all very linked at this moment. Um, and it was something that anarchists, I think, had a lot to contribute because of their experience in these other realms. Real quick, let's talk about Operation Rescue. We've been bringing them up a lot. Let's actually define who they were. My understanding is that they were an above-ground wing of the anti-abortion movement, but they were either explicitly or implicitly in support of the more extreme militant actions that were also taking place in the anti-abortion movement, like the targeting of doctors, uh, people blowing up clinics and stuff like that. Um, I don't know if that's correct, but just give us your understanding of what Operation Rescue was and, and why it was important in that far-right movement. Yeah, so Operation Rescue was founded in 1986 um, by Randall Terry, amongst others. And just like you said, my understanding is that they formed the above-ground uh, component of the militant anti-abortion struggle. Um, so they were the more respectable group. Um, and yeah, they would go out and, you know, picket abortion clinics and try to shut them down, et cetera. But as you said, um, they also, uh, were vocal in their support of people who were bombing abortion clinics and assassinating doctors, right? And they said that this is just what is needed in order to, um, prevent, prevent abortion from taking place. And so they kind of, formed um the i would say the major locus of the militant anti-abortion movements in this time period because of their ability to you know both do the above ground struggle and to train new generations of people to engage in these tactics to shut down clinics but also to provide support for um the more violent um wing of the movements that uh was yeah bombing and assassinating people yeah, you know, and if, if I could add to that, um, yeah, they, um, kind of modeled themselves after, um, Martin Luther King's strategy of like winning popular support by being nonviolent. So they were actually very among, in this very violent movement, there were hundreds of bombings of clinics in the nineties and killings of abortion doctors and patients and workers. And there was the KKK was outside the clinics. Um, but they would come in and do this praying on their knees, like praying and, you know, um, to project this peaceful image to the media. And that's why it was so intense. My friend Laura, um, she was part of this group, um, Bay Area Coalition for Our Reproductive Rights, Bay Corps. And in 1995, um, Operation Rescue and this group called Missionaries for the Preborn. Um, came to shut down a clinic in Hollywood. It was somewhere in LA. Um, and the Feminist Majority Foundation was running the show at this clinic and they allowed the missionaries for the preborn and Operation Rescue to block this clinic and do a huge media opportunity, have their photos taken, praying on their knees and saying, we are a peaceful movement and then being arrested very gently by the police. And my friend Laura was told to get away from the door and allow Operation Rescue and Missionaries for the Preborn to shut down that clinic for two hours. Um, and they were told, my friend Laura and her friends were told to hold signs and chant from the sidelines while this media opportunity was being controlled by the Christian right. Um, and, and Laura and her friends were beaten up by the police and arrested, and the Feminist Majority Foundation did not support them, did not even tell the legal support that they had been arrested. All of this was so that um, because the strategy that the liberal feminists had put into play was to rely on the police and also um, to use these laws. There was this thing called the face law that was targeted at Operation Rescue. Um, so they were trying to test this law out and like have it battled out in the courts. So this face law like that Clinton put in was like, you're not allowed to try to shut down these clinics. And um after that incident in California, those people weren't even charged with the face law anyway. So like they allowed this to happen for no reason. So that's, that's a big part of my critique of how, why, um, you know, why, uh, the Christian right won this fight. Sit down. Shut up, shut up, sit down. Sit down. Shut up. 
up, shut up now. Sit down. Shut up, shut up, sit down. Sit down. Shut up, shut up now. Listen to the sound. Listen to the voice. People never heard, never had a choice. They talk too much. They never shut up. They talk too much. Time to listen up. I done the math. There's more of us to all my people feeling stuck. Love us on the ground. Always get up. Skinny little bit. Body rolled over. When we come together, transform us. Stand so tall. Shooting the shit. I got shit to shoot. I watching all y'all. We took the loot. Observing. Think you cute. Think you slick. Eat a dick. That don't work. You suck on this. Get it quick. Pull on the green. Never pass the shit. Poor always carry the rich. We work for it. You greedy. Exploitive. Manipulate. You a cold bitch. Scandalous. We stay warm. Tradition, fuck the man. By the man we meant that government. They taught us all that gangster shit. Sit down, shut up, shut up, sit down, sit down, shut up, shut up now. Sit down, shut up, shut up, sit down, sit down, shut up, shut up now. Listen to the sound. Who silenced our voice? Silence for a reason. Ignored by choice. They talk too much. They never shut up. They talk too much. Time to listen up. They talk all that, talk all this. The poor stay poor and the rich stay rich. Talk all that, make it is bleed. Talk all that, never get what you need. Poverty created daily, no dignity. We angry and tired, placing blame where don't need to be. They made a violent society. We need a punch up, punch up. We on some, they need us and shit. They're the trying to make us forget. We do all the work all days, always. We don't need them. Checkmate, it's true. We never hear our point of view, our words we see. Talk all that with a butter ass teeth. Yup, mouth, get no relief. Let us live, let us breathe. Borrowing courage from each other to speak. If I lean on you, would you lean on me? Then we don't need that position. Change with ease. The system, make them obsolete. And listen, sit down. Shut up, shut up, sit down. Sit down. Shut up, shut up now. Sit down. Shut up, shut up, sit down. Sit down. So let's talk about broadly how people went forward in combating this militant wing of the anti-abortion movement. I wanted to also talk about the resistance in Minneapolis. Uh, Spencer, you talked about this in your article. Also, too, I think this kind of begs the question, like, why was it important to focus on Operation Rescue as a group to be confronted? Why were they important? Yeah, I mean, as I said, I think that Operation Rescue is especially important because they had the national reach. They were well connected with all of the militant anti-abortion people, and they were formed kind of part of the core of the growing Christian right fascist movement. Um, and they were able to pull off some very major national actions. Um, so, for instance, in 1991, they had what they called their Summer of Mercy in Wichita, Kansas, um, which was very successful. And they got a ton of media attention and were able to shut down clinics. Um, and it was actions like those that really seemed... Um, that made it seem like Operation Rescue was really growing and that the anti-abortion movement was growing in um, support and power in the U.S. So then Operation Rescue tried to repeat this, um, but not in Kansas, instead in Minneapolis in 1993. So they wanted to host what they called an impact summer training camp in Minneapolis. Now, Minneapolis um, as Susie said earlier, was one of the centers of love and rage. It was also one of the centers of the broader anarchist and radical movement in the country. Um, it was where anti-racist action came out of. Um, it was where existence was. Um, and there was an info shop called the Emma Center. There, there was a lot of action happening in Minneapolis um, in, you know, the late 80s and into the 90s. Um, and this was a very different place for Operation Rescue to try to have their big national events. Um, and so it was widely publicized that this was going to happen. And a big coalition of anarchists and other leftists and feminist groups developed 
in Minneapolis to prevent this from happening, to prevent Operation Rescue from being able to organize, to prevent them from training a new generation of anti-abortion militants, and simply to run them out of town, to say that they are not welcome here, they cannot carry out what they want to do. So anarchists uh, uh, vowed that um, if Operation Rescue came to town, um, there was a, a widely distributed poster that Profane Existence put out, said if Operation Rescue comes to town, we'll lock you in a church and burn that effort down. Um, it didn't go quite that far, but anarchists and others physically confronted Operation Rescue. They blocked them in their church. They disrupted their meetings. They vandalized all of their materials. They prevent, protected clinics from Operation Rescue's attacks, and they made it impossible for them to carry out their trainings, carry out their meetings, carry out any activities that they wanted. And they ultimately ran Operation Rescue out of town. Um, and there were some liberals within the coalition that opposed these tactics, that wanted to have a complete commitment to nonviolence, to peaceful processes, to, you know, battling things out in courts and in the legal system rather than in the streets. Um, but I think it was an important victory um, for the anarchists and for the more radical wing of the abortion movement um, to take control and to run the fascists out of town and to really make a national statement um, about where the movement was at at that point. And I think it's no coincidence that it was a year later in 1994 that Bill Clinton signs the, the FACE Act, in, um, as Susie mentioned, um, to uh, protect um, it's the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act, um, which made it very expensive, um, which targeted Operation Rescue and made it much more expensive for them to try to block um, abortion clinic entrances. And I think that it's only because of the action in the streets and the defeat in the streets and the mass mobilization um, that then, you know, similar to Roe v. Wade being passed in 1973 after years of mass mobilization, I think it's the mobilization that comes first and any kind of legal action follows. You mentioned Operation Rescue being able to close clinics. Talk about how they were actually able to do that, because from what you're saying, it seems like they just protested, harassed people. How were they successful in actually closing some of them? I mean, it was the kind of thing, as Susie said, that they would have these big kind of civil disobedience spectacles in front of the clinics where, you know, in the summer of mercy in 1991 in Kansas, I mean, they just had hundreds and hundreds of people who would blockade clinic entrances and, you know, have these coordinated arrests. Um, and, you know, if they could do that for long enough, then they would prevent a clinic from um, fulfilling any appointments that day. And so if there was nobody there to actually step in and stop this from happening and protect the entrance of the clinics, then Operation Rescue would be able to do this um, to, to you know, physically blockade the entrance. And then because of the police presence and everything else, um, it was just impossible for folks to go into the clinics who needed to. Um, and I think that it was seeing that that really, you know, made people realize that the only way to actually handle this was not through the state, was not through police, was not through legal changes, but rather actually organizing to um, protect clinics, to keep them open, and to uh, prevent Operation Rescue from carrying out uh, their strategy. Yeah, and I think um, Operation Rescue... Um I think that they have had a, a very successful, lasting impact in terrorizing people, um, you know, even beyond, um, you know, they don't do that swarming of the clinics anymore where they would just swarm and shut it down. Um, but they energized so many people like they were the grassroots movement. They were doing base building organizing the way that we do on the left. And that's why they were successful. So we were doing base building, organizing, grassroots work to to um, surround those clinics first before they came and protect the clinics so that they couldn't swarm and block the doors and stop people from getting their health care. Do you want to talk about the crossover between 
the militant anti-abortion movement and explicit white nationalism, I think one example might be a group like the Army of God. I don't know if you want to speak on that, that crossover. A, I would recommend to anybody listening to read Matthew Lyons's book, Insurgent Supremacist, The U.S. Far-Right's Challenge to State and Empire, because he goes into this a lot more of how the white nationalist movement developed in these years and the interconnections with the Christian right and with anti-abortion activism. Um, and I think that it it is important historically to understand the role that patriarchy and white supremacy play in especially the U.S. fascist movement, right, where it's so interconnected. We can't separate out white supremacy from patriarchy, from fascism. Um, it's, it's this whole milieu of um, people involved in various groups, um, whether they were, you know, carrying out violent actions or doing more base building stuff. Um, but a lot of the, the um, white nationalists in the United States um, – uh, or sorry, let me back up. So, um, there, there's two different things going on here, right? One is the kind of fear of the great replacements, um, that white people are dying out, are not having enough children, and that they're being replaced through immigration and through black people, through, uh, Latinx people having more babies, right? And so, a lot of the white nationalists, they viewed abortion through this lens and said, we need to prevent white women from having abortions so that they can produce more, you know, white soldiers in the struggle for, um, for white power. Um, and so, you know, the, these white supremacist fascists, it was actually core to their ideology and strategy that they would be able to control the reproductive labor of white women. Um, and, you know, and then use that to produce the new nation. Um, so that I think is a, an important component of all of this. And the other side of it is that then they would often, you know, actually support things like sterilization of black and brown women. Well, let's now turn towards, uh, some other aspects of the work that Love and Rage was involved in. Um, Susie, can you talk about the various like educational aspects to the work i know there was like speaking tours and workshops and a lot of publishing that was going on talking to folks about how they could engage in reproductive and health autonomy on their own or you know on a community level outside the state talk a little bit about that similar to the clinic defense um i was participating in this stuff before i joined love and rage but i'm sure love and rage was you know very involved in all of this um but i went to um the 1993 Mid-Atlantic Anarchist Gathering in Philly. Um, you know, I was 19. So all of these stories that I'm relating, I was 18, 19. So I wasn't like a leader or organizer in, in these things. I was um, really learning, right? So I went to this workshop there and also a similar workshop in New York City at Blackout Books, um, which was the anarchist bookstore on the Lower East Side at the time. Um, and we learned how to use a speculum, which is what is used to examine your cervix and um, which is like the part of the anatomy that's like at the end of the vaginal canal and before the um, uterus, which is where the fetus is carried. Um, so um, uh, we were shown how to use it and we were given one. I still have mine. Um, and they showed us um, like this, um, the mechanism that was used to do a menstrual extraction. So menstrual extraction is an abortion that actually can be done by home if you have the training um, with, you know, it's done by like one or two other people. I think I can't say too much about it, but uh, from what I understand from herbalists who I know, um, it's safer and more effective than an herbal abortion. So this was what people were talking about at that time. And there was like a suction mechanism and beakers. And um, so it would really extract the contents of the uterus. Um, so this was amazing and mind blowing to witness even just the machine, not even like in action. But um, it was amazing to, to realize, oh, my God, we could do this ourselves. We don't even have to worry in this case. Like if it's me, I don't have to worry about what the laws are in my state, you know. Um, so in that way, it's um, 
you know, it actually <laughs> removes power from the state and builds our autonomous collective power. You know, you need a few friends to, to perform this technique. Um, and you're building your power together collectively, um, your power over your own bodies. And it takes away the power from the state. If, especially if you can make it more widely available to people who are not necessarily part of like punk scenes or whatever, you know, um, cause I, you know, I was part of subcultures that allowed me to uh, have access to this. But from after those workshops, you know, I knew who I could ask if I needed something like this or if a friend of mine needed an abortion and couldn't access one, um, in our doctor's office. So, um, that was very inspiring. You're listening to It's Going Down, part of the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. Follow us online at itsgoingdown.org and on Twitter at IGD underscore news. If you like and appreciate this podcast, go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop and give us a one-time donation. Sign up to donate monthly or donate through Bitcoin. Again, that's itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support. And now, back to the show. Can you talk about the campaign against so-called fake clinics in New York City? Um, let's also take this uh, moment to also talk about these fake clinics and how they kind of rose to prominence. I mean, now everybody's talking about them because they're getting vandalized across the country. Yeah, I mean, even now there's four times as many fake clinics than there are real providers, you know, so across the country, there's so many of them, they get so much money. And they're basically they're not providing health care, but they say that they're clinics. And then when you go in there, they're, they're called crisis pregnancy centers. So they'll just tell you, oh, you have to keep your baby, blah, blah, blah. And um, they won't give you any information about how to get the care that you are seeking. So when we were um, when I lived in New York City, when I was in Love and Rage, um, we did coalition work with other groups. Um, like Refuse and Resist and WAM, which is the Women's Health Action Mobilization, which was like close to ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. Um, so it's part of the AIDS movement, but is, um, you know, around um, women's health and issues of abortion, all of those um, women's health issues um, at the time. And this was like 97 or 98. And we did go to one of these fake, like it was crazy. Like there was this fake clinic in Midtown Manhattan which it was really eye-opening because you wouldn't have expected, I did not expect that, you know, um, in a place where we felt like we had more power. Um, and we, we vandalized it. I think it was, I don't know if it was mostly stickers or what, I don't remember very well. Um, but um, yeah, I, I mostly, honestly, my feeling was of like futility, you know, like these places need to be burned to the ground, but um, you know, not with people in them uh, the way that the Christian right would do it. Um, but they needed to disappear and we were not, we were not able to do that and they still exist. Uh, they're so pervasive. So let's now switch gears. And this is a question for both of y'all, but how did anarchists deal with the broader pro-choice left? You know, as you were saying, originally when you were getting involved, people were saying like, oh, we don't have to do clinic defense anymore. We should rely on the police and the courts. Um, and also they were trying to, as you were describing it before we started recording, destroy the grassroots movement against the Christian right. So talk about that tension and how anarchists navigated that. Yeah, you know, I feel like, you know, like I said, Operation Rescue and those groups, they really energized large numbers of people. And they understood like they're like they had a theory of change that was similar to ours, which is that change comes from below. It comes from the people. Um, and, um, the liberal feminists did not have that theory of change. Their theory of change was that it comes from the state or from people lobbying the state with like high paid lobbyists. Um, so yeah, so that story I told you about Laura from Baycor and she was a close ally of love and rage. And she wrote an article about that experience of being told to step away from the door and allow Operation Rescue to shut down this clinic. In California, she wrote an article about that in 1995 in the Love and Rage newspaper. Um, and so I really got my analysis from her experience and her analysis. Um, yeah, so it's like they were relying on these RICO racketeering laws as well, you know, and those are the kind of things that have historically been used against the left. Um, and, um, they were calling in like the FBI and SWAT teams and stuff. Now this was a time when, and it still does happen, but like people were getting killed at these clinics by the Christian right. 
Um, but the clinics chose to start relying on the police. Um, even though when the police would come, they would arrest us first. You know, they were not friendly to, um, you know, feminists, anarchists, um, people fighting for their freedom, reproductive freedom. Um, and I think part of it is like, um, liberals really hate chaos and they kind of hate the chaos of movement building and the grassroots. There is a, you know, there's a good argument to be made and there's, you know, a lot of amazing people working in clinics now and who have been suffering and like dealing with this for such a long time. They don't want the clinics to be a battleground. They don't want people who are coming in for their health care to, to feel like they're crossing a, a war zone. Um, and that's reasonable <laughs> for sure. But the fact is when they told us to go home ever since then, you know, they told us to stop defending the clinics. They sent away the grassroots movement. And ever since then, um, you know, you've had everywhere across the country, even in Philly, even in New York, you have people harassing and shaming people getting their health care. You have these Christian right people praying, harassing, like that's that grassroots shaming campaign has won, um, you know, this war over abortion access for the Christian right. So um, it's like, you know, the, the Christian right at that point was using grassroots strategy because they had done everything they felt they could in the courts. So they were giving up the court, the court strategy and the legal, legal strategy. Then the liberals were like, OK, we're going to do the court and legal strategy. Right. And then they were like, we're not doing a grassroots strategy anymore. So and and ever since then, you know, whenever there's an upsurge of outreach, outrage and movement building around abortion rights, abortion access um, and reproductive freedom. It's very brief. It's a lot of young people who are really angry, but they don't have a movement to go into because it's very hard to build a base when you're not at the place where the harm is being done. So the clinic defense was uh, it was like we were at that spot, literally defending that clinic. Whereas now it's like you're just carrying a sign and you're walking in the biggest street of your town and you're saying keep abortion legal. And that's not inspiring. It's not inspiring to anyone. Whereas before we would be we'd be out there and there would be the church ladies for choice, which is, it was like queer men in drag, you know, um, preaching about freedom, uh, reproductive freedom and like really creative, energizing tactics, like almost like a festive buffer between the patients and the attackers, like people trying to shut down the clinic. Um, and that's the kind of thing that draws people in and builds our power. Um, but, um, but yeah, we were told to go home and then the Christian right kind of did that, that strategy on their side and built their grassroots and energized their grassroots. And, um, so we've seen what the results are. In fact, like people getting abortions now are like much more likely to say that it was a bad experience, that they feel bad about it. Whereas um, when it first um, became more accessible in the 70s and 80s, people expressed relief, even joy, you know, at having been able to take care of that problem. But now people, I feel like it's very normal to feel shame about it. Totally agree with everything that, that Susie just said. And I think, too, that like a really key takeaway from from the analysis that, that Susie is presenting is that the Christian right has recognized where power comes from um, and how they can make social change. And that is at the grassroots level of organizing and mobilizing and building power. Um, whereas so much of what the left has been doing and what the mainstream feminist movement has been doing is to disempower the movements and to put more power into the states and the legal system um, and, you know, at the demonstrations that have been organized recently, you know, so much of it is is like um, Planned Parenthood, which is, you know, a great organization. But if their message to us in the street as we're, you know, marching in the biggest street in our town with signs there, they say, what is the next step? It's to um, vote. It's to lobby your representatives um, to, you know, write them postcards and to um, give more money to Planned Parenthood. And that's so different from what what needs to be done. It's, you know, 
take power into our own hands and figure out how to provide for ourselves um, and to recognize that the state is um, a fundamentally patriarchal institution that is never on our side. Um, and so we need to do the things that will take the power away from the states and make it so that um, we have power in our own hands. And I think that that is um, <clears throat> that's a really important takeaway from all of this is that so much of what we've been talking about is just like struggle in um, in the realm of things that we don't actually control, whether it's, you know, defending abortion clinics from Operation Rescue or thinking about legal struggles um uh all of that is outside of us actually having control over our own health and over our own bodies um and that you know what love and rage and other anarchist groups i think um did that was in in many ways even um more important in terms of takeaways than doing things like confronting operation rescue was building up um, grassroots abortion and reproductive care infrastructure, the self-help groups that Suzu was describing um, that teach people about their own bodies and how to care for their bodies, um, and that those things proliferated across the United States in the 1990s, and they still exist today, and we need more of them today, um, and that people were spreading that analysis and spreading those skills um, and, you know, Love and Ragers went on what they called a women's health tour in 1993 to spread this analysis and to help people form these groups um, in different places across the country. And so building all of that infrastructure and building um, the skills and the analysis and the capacity from the ground up, all of that disempowers the states, disempowers the radical rights and the Christian right and builds power um, from the from the base up um, and provides the basis for a new world that is shaped fundamentally by our autonomy and our collective freedom. So today, how can we learn from the various forms of organization that anarchists used in the 90s uh, during these struggles? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, grassroots organizing, um, building support networks. I think people, it's, yeah, like Spencer said, people are doing this, um, support networks to help people get the abortion healthcare that they need, um, whether underground or above ground. Um, it's also really important to do anti-racist pro-queer coalition building. Cause if you are, um, trying, we need to, we need to unite and drive a wedge into the right wing and divide them. We, we divide them and unite ourselves. So the only way to unite is to really, you can't try to unite people and then forget about, um, you know, issues that affect, um, people of color and, you know, black and indigenous other people of color, um, queer and trans people. And we, we need everyone in the room, especially, you know, some, like the, the amazing leaders who come from those movements, um, and organizers, um, and direct action. So, we were at the place where um, where it was going down and we were like literally with our bodies defending our access to healthcare. And I think also like the, the kind of um, the, the, the spirit of that movement um, and that time was really important. Like some of the things that I mentioned in terms of our just our consciousness and our joy and our liberation just like together. Um, like, um, like even like when we went to, there was this group human life international, which is a Catholic, um, Christian right group, um, with racist, um, and homophobic, um, uh, politics. I was in love and rage. Um, and I went, went to Minneapolis in 1997, uh, with, um, to, to, you know, um, confront them with other love and rage people. Um, and, you know, the coalition organizing they did before that, um, before HLI even came to town, um, forced them to move their whole event out of St. Paul and into the suburbs because um, people, you know, Love and Mage and other groups fighting this um, put a spotlight on the anti-Semitism of this group. So they worked with, um, they reached out to um, Jewish groups and, and like those groups were like, hey, we don't want this anti-Semitic group. The, cause human life international, like their leader was saying something like, um, it's these Jewish doctors killing babies, you know, like really offensive, horrific, you know, and they would talk about compared to the Holocaust and all this horrible, 
horrible comparison. So, so what we did was we surrounded, we um, stood in front of their church doors and had a kiss in. So we were all kissing each other, uh, queer kiss in, and like that kind of thing is like, oh, you know, I've been in love and rage for two years. I always thought this girl, girl was cute, you know, and now I get to kiss her, and like we were all excited, and that just gave us so much energy. And um, also just freaked them out. You know, they were stuck in the church trying to decide if they wanted to come outside. Um, and like they finally come outside and then we surround them and they were doing this candlelight march. And we were all like energized and excited and feeling really powerful in our bodies. And I actually just flashed them. Like I was not wearing a bra and I was like, I have, I have giant breath for anyone who doesn't know me. And I, we just felt powerful enough that and I felt safe to just like throw out my shirt and just watch these people like freak out and like they're horrified and that just felt so empowering and I feel like that type of movement is not you know um it is that is what I'm hoping to see in the streets now and we need that one of the most important lessons and takeaways from love and rage but also from anti-racist action and other radical groups is that having at least some form of basic national organization enables us to do so much more. You know, if we are able to um, have a platform and a structure for discussions and debates to happen, um, to coordinate national strategy, to spread, you know, new forms of tactics, um, to learn from each other, to also, you know, uh, enable um, calls like the one to get people to Minneapolis in 1993 or the one in 1997, right? Um, all of that takes some basic forms of organization that I think can be connected intimately to the sort of counter infrastructure and, you know, reproductive care infrastructure. Like we need those forms of organization um, that have national reach um, that can enable us to build our capacity and our power. Um, so I think that that's one important lesson. Um, and I think that, you know, the broader lesson is that uh, we can't trust the state. We can't trust the legal system. We can't trust the courts. We also can't trust the, you know, professional NGO led struggle. Um, what worked to win abortion in the past was militant mass struggle organized movements of millions of people fighting for um, justice and autonomy and freedom and also taking control of their own bodies, learning to care for themselves, learning to perform abortions, learning to do all of their reproductive care that we need um, in order to have power um, and freedom in our own communities. Um, and that that is how abortion was won. And that's how abortion is going to be protected today. Um, and I want to just end with um, how Jenny Brown closes out her book without apology, the abortion struggle now, which came out in 2019 and Verso. It's an incredible book. I think that it speaks to our moment so well and that everybody should read it. And she says more important than speaking truth to power is speaking truth to each other in order to build our power. This is how we're going to protect and advance abortion rights, and it's also how we're going to win the other things we need for our happiness. We can start by studying our radical history, joining and supporting dues-funded feminist groups, and conducting feminist consciousness-raising groups in every neighborhood and speakouts in every town. This is how we win. And I could not agree more. Well, Susie, I wanted to turn to you to get the last word in terms of where you see things right now. Uh, you know, there was a wave of demonstrations when this brief was leaked by Politico. We've seen um, a wave of uh, targeted vandalism against fake clinics and other places like that under the moniker of Jane's Revenge. You know, I'm curious, you know, what you think of what's happened so far, but also just what you think actually needs to be done in the current context. Yeah. Well, you know, I love this um, targeting the, the fake clinics. I think it's very, it's been very inspiring to me and my friends. Um, I think that these places do need to be destroyed. And, you know, what I love, you know, one of the many things I love about the left, we don't try to, you know, um, we're not like 
senselessly violent the way that the right is, you know, and we'll make sure that nobody's there when we destroy these places. Um, but it has to be done. And uh, I just hope people don't get caught and um, just keep on going. And um, also, um, yeah, I, I would say, you know, I, I listen to it's going down um, podcast or with um, my old comrade, Paul. O'Banion. Actually, he wrote an article as well, just really about like anti-fascist organizing, really not. We can't be afraid of, um, you know, this coalition building and that that anti-fascists need to talk to union people, you know, union workers and community groups and and not be a um, just sort of, you know, just try really hard not to just become a subculture that's that has like difficult to engage with. Um, and, and I feel that way as well with this. Like, I think that I would just really encourage people to not be afraid to be leaders and really put forward really strong ideas about strategy and tactics. Um, do not wait for NARAL and all of Planned Parenthood to do anything. Um, and really choose your strategies wisely, but really also don't be afraid to fail. I mean, the only thing we really, I feel like we need to be extra cautious about, um, being anti-racist and pro-queer and really, um, like intersectional in our analysis and in our organizing, but everything else, like just don't be afraid to fail and, and to, to mess up and like to really try to figure out how can you do direct action? Like how can you be where the place is that the struggle is and, and do something that actually makes a tangible difference? Um, because that's what really inspires people the most. Tell people how they can follow you. Just at Susie subways with, a, you know, like a train subway train with the S on the end. Yeah, and you can follow me at Spencer Beswick on Twitter and also my blog, EmptyHandsHistory.com. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.